0: Howdy y'all, thanks for joining me once again for this edition of the History of Christianity, season two. Today we are at part seven. We're gonna talk about the Radical Reformation. We'll continue on from this point into looking at the branches of the Reformation that spread out past both Martin Luther and Zwingli. So to begin with, it's important to understand that there soon became critics of the Reformation and not critics from the Catholic side, but critics from the Protestant side from those who were already part of the reform who thought that Luther and Zwingli had not gone far enough. Many people did criticize them. They wanted them to carry their ideas to their logical conclusions, and Luther and Zwingli were a little bit more hesitant to do that. And you can understand why when a movement gets going, it's gonna pick up steam, but you also have to understand that these guys were the ones who first stepped out on that limb. So they are definitely targets and they're gonna be a little bit more cautious while others are ready to plow forward and regardless of the consequences. These critics claim that Luther and Zwingli forgot that in the New Testament there is a contrast between the church and the society surrounding it. So what does that mean? The result was persecution of the early Christians by Roman society. So the point that this group is making is early on in Christianity, there was a stark difference between what the church believed and lived and taught and what the society believed and lived and taught. And as a result of that, there was a divide that resulted in persecution. The society was offended by what these early Christians believed and the way that they lived their lives. Because of that, they were persecuted. Some of them were imprisoned, some were tortured, and there were obviously many who lost their lives. And so they're they're saying, don't forget that that's the way it looked originally, but then what happened? When Constantine converted, compromises took place between the church and state. And the point is correct, actually. When you look back at that time, there were a lot of compromises. Now, what those early Christian leaders, many of them said was, it was worth it to end the persecution. It's easy for people that had not ever been persecuted to sit back and say, well, you should have continued to be persecuted. When you've grown up with and you've lived for a significant amount of your life, at a time in which the state is hounding you and wants to destroy you. I don't think it's unreasonable to see that that group wanting to say, "Okay, this is this is a, this is God. This is God ful- fulfilling his promise to spread the gospel around the world. Now the state isn't going to stop it. We we can work with the state." And it's very understandable. Now we also know that when you look back at that time, there were those that didn't agree with that even then and mo- largely they didn't stay in the church and fight the church what they did was they moved out on their own they moved into the deserts and that became the furtherance of a movement that had already begun at that time but it, it, it grew even larger and that was the monastic movement people that wanted to get away from society and eventually form communities and we know what all happened from there so that the the point of these critics at this time was that the compromises that were made were a betrayal of primitive Christianity. And you can certainly make the case for that. If you look back at it and see what happened to the church once Constantine came in, you can definitely see that there have been problems ever since. And it's amazing how much what we do is still influenced by the changes that were made once Constantine came in. The The criticism is valid, but... Again, this is a group that hadn't had to go through what these early Christians went through. And so it's it's easy to say it when you don't have to go through it now. There are some of this group that are going to go through it soon, and it's going to come from an unlikely source. In order to be truly obedient to Scripture, the Reformation started by Luther must go much further. Obviously, they're wanting to push this. Infant baptism must be rejected because it obscures the need for a personal decision that stands at the heart of Christianity. Again, a very valid point. The, there's no way we looked last week Zwingli with the stances that he took there's no way that he should have advocated for infant baptism and yet he still did because he just didn't want to make that break he thought that that was going too far and it was going to push even further those that were his critics to try to stop what he was doing and he wasn't comfortable with that again was it the right was it right no But you can understand you're the one out on the limb. You're the one with the target on your back and you're already getting shot at. Do you want to make that target bigger or do you want to just say, you know, let me not cut off my nose to spite my face. Let me not fight this battle now. I've already fought enough battles. We'll just kind of go along to try to keep things a little bit more in line with maybe actually having reform within the church. And both of these guys, Lutherans, Wingley started out wanting to reform the Catholic Church. They didn't want to start their own group. They didn't want to break away. They ended up eventually having to do that. But that's not what their goal was. So you can see why they wanted to try to keep those bridges from burning completely. Now again, am I saying that it was right what they did? Well, no. We know that infant baptism is not correct. It's it's not the right kind of baptism. It's not the New Testament baptism. New Testament baptism was about declaring your own personal faith. It was for a person to be able to say that they had come into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. So if you're wanting to baptize in the New Testament way, you don't baptize infants because they can't do that. It wasn't the right thing, but at least you can understand why they didn't wanna go that far. And you can also understand why this group had come to the conclusion that we need to go this far. This is true, this is correct. If we're gonna stand what scripture says, which these guys are saying, then we need to go all the way with it. They also insisted that the community of faith must be responsible for disciplining its own members. The purity of life needed in order to be a witness for the gospel could not and should not be enforced by the civil government. So this group wants to get the government out of church affairs. They don't want them to be involved. They don't think they should be involved. It's not up to them. The church should take care of its own members. Now church discipline is kind of a thing that's gone by the wayside. It's not really practiced anymore, at least not largely there may be some places that still do but for the most part it's not so this is a little bit of a foreign concept to us but the idea here is that the society shouldn't be in charge of making rules that promote a christian lifestyle or a purity of life and they shouldn't be in charge of enforcing that that's the church's business they should stay out of it and it surely needs to be enforced but it shouldn't be by the government they should stay out and not really have a part in that so again it's a strong separation of church and state but the emphasis is on keeping the state out of the church and not necessarily the other way around all the time although this group would have said that that it should be both so looking further most of the radical reformers also held that pacifism must be an essential element in the life of a christian the sermon on the mount must be obeyed literally and what they would say by that is that you never lifted a hand to defend yourself. If somebody hits you, you offer the other cheek. If somebody kicks you, you take it. If somebody throws you down, you take it. If somebody stomps on you, you take it. If somebody kills you, threatens to kill you, you don't even defend your own life. That's a very strong stance. That's a tough one to take. As we're gonna see, it becomes especially tough when you start looking at the civil authorities. What do you do with a society of people who say you never fight back? And as a matter of fact, where it really becomes a sticking point is that they believe that Christians should never take up arms to defend themselves or their country. So you've got a nation of people, what if they all believe this way? What if we encourage them to go along with this? Well, I've got a nation of pacifists, that sounds great, except for when an enemy decides to come attack us. Now I have no way to defend my country because nobody's going to take up arms of defending it. That society can't exist. It will not stand. Right or wrong, that's just not a society that's going to stand. So if you're in the, the business of being a civil authority, you can't go along with this. It may be biblically correct, but it won't work in a society. So there already, you can see, there's going to be some real problems, and they they're definitely come from the religious part, but they also come from the state as well, the civil authorities. This call to pacifism was not well received in Austria and Germany. So we're gonna see directly why. The, in those places, the Turks were a constant threat. So they're looking around and saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> These Turks are, they've come after us more than once and they're gonna come again. So what do we do when we just lay our arms down? We're just gonna say, okay, Turks, come on in and take us over. You, that No government is gonna say that. There's just no way. So, you can understand I mean again we we I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I understand that Jesus says that you are not to strike another person, you should not be violent towards another person. I absolutely understand that, but I also understand the state saying can't can't do it. Once it gets to the point that you say you're not going to take up arms to defend the nation, then we can't go that far. Then there's also the problem in Zurich that the Protestant areas of Switzerland were in danger of the Catholic armies. We talked about that again last week. In fact, they eventually did get attacked. So again, you, Zurich comes along, the, the government there says, well, wait a minute, all these people are now starting to say they're not going to defend us. Well, well, the Catholics are—they're already gathering an army. They've allied themselves with Charles V. They're going to come eventually, and you're saying, well, you're not going to—you're not going to defend this nation, well, we might as well just let them in and take over now. We're not going to be in charge any longer." So again, there's going to be conflict because these two ideas are not compatible. So the group that comes out of this are their name is the Anabaptists, but it's not really a legitimate name for them. We'll see that in a moment. A group formed in Zurich. They urged Zwingli to lead a more radical reformation. These people called themselves the Brethren. So what the group that became the Anabaptists, the name that they had for themselves was the Brethren, but that's not the name that stuck. And they want Zwingli to come along with them. They like Zwingli. They have come there. If they were not already there, they've come there to follow Zwingli's teachings. And they like him better than Luther, or he's the one that they've heard from more. Because they are from that area, regardless of that, they've they come for Zwingli, and they say, yes, Zwingli, yes, we agree with you, but wait, let's go further, let's go further. And they want him to come along with them. Well, the brethren insisted that they needed to form a congregation of true believers, separating themselves from those they believed were Christian in name only. So they're kind of saying, well, let we'll point out to you who the real Christians are. There's a lot of these people who just, they say they're Christians, but not, they're really not. They're just they're taking the name on for whatever reason cultural or you, whatever it is family and but they're not really living it they don't believe it the way we do so we get this elitism that we see often throughout religious history and certainly in Christianity they they've now determined who the true Christians are and they want to break off to take that group with them. Well, Zwingli had no intention of doing that. When they realized that Zwingli would not follow this course of action, a group of the Brethren decided to form their own congregation. So they said, oh, you're not going to go with us? Uh, Well, you know, too bad. We'd like to have you, but that's okay. We'll just go do it ourselves. George Blaurock, a former priest, asked Conrad Grable to baptize him in the fountain which stood in the city square of Zurich. Blaurock had come to Zurich to be a student of Zwingli, but then... He he got in with this group. And they he comes to be baptized now. And once that happened, Blaurock baptized several others. So he's in with the group. The group soon became known as Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers, not anti-baptists, not against baptism, but Anabaptists baptize again, rebaptize but it's not a valid name because the group did not call for people to be rebaptized. so they're not saying get baptized again they're saying you never were baptized to start with if you were baptized as an infant if you were baptized as an unbeliever if you were baptized before you really knew what it took to come into relationship with god through faith in christ that that baptism was not valid so we're not asking you to be rebaptized. we're asking you to be baptized for the first time they simply objected to infant baptism which they viewed as invalid they rightly said the only true baptism is that following a public confession of faith but from the outside looking in, it looks like they're saying be baptized twice because they are asking people that already were baptized, which these other groups took as being legitimate, to get baptized again. So right off the bat, the, the name was not one that was even supposed to be descriptive so much, but it stuck with them, and that's the name that they got, whether they wanted it or not. The Anabaptist movement drew great opposition from both Catholics and other Protestants. So <laughs> here's the problem here. you they, they ticked both sides off. Neither one like them. Obviously, the Catholics are not going to like them because they're definitely an offshoot of the Protestant group, but the Protestants don't like them either. And what was the main objection? Well, there are a lot of objections, but these groups would have said that the main objection was not necessarily theological, but that the Anabaptists were thought to be subversive. And this is where you get into the problems with having a functional society with a religious group that doesn't really want to function in society. While Lutherans and Wingley refrained from any interpretation of the gospel that would make it a threat to the established social order, the Anabaptists did threaten the social order. So when you threaten the powers that be, you're going to get pushback. And especially if your movement starts taking on followers. If you're just a little group out there in the middle of wherever and nobody really knows much about you and don't care about you anyway, then you can get away with it. But once you start picking up steam and the powers that be look around and figure out, well, wait a minute. We're, bu- we're about to lose our gravy train. We're about to lose our army. We're about to lose all the stuff that keeps us in the style to which we become accustomed. We're, we can't allow this to happen. And again, it's easy to joke about. and It is, in some ways, it, it is a joke. But on the other hand, there's some truth to it too. Again, you think about these ideas. If, if it's a group of people doing it, maybe it's okay. But if it takes on widespread appeal, And you've got nothing but a nation of people that won't be involved in the civil government, won't serve in civil government, won't be involved in the army, won't take up arms to defend the country. You don't have a truly functional society. You just don't. You can make the argument whether you think it's right or wrong. And I understand those arguments. And I don't necessarily disagree with them. But I also understand that when you're in power in a civil government, you've got to have a functional society. And if you're not going to have that, then... You're not going to sit back and do nothing, and they certainly didn't do that. And as such, there was resistance to the Anabaptists. The extreme pacifism of the Anabaptists was unacceptable to those in charge of maintaining social and political order amidst the upheavals of the 16th century. They just determined this can't happen. We're not going to be able to have a society that works like this. It may sound good on paper, but it's not going to work. Also in emphasizing the contrast between the church and civil society, the Anabaptists implied that the power structures within civil society should not be adopted by the church. They're seemingly coming out against the civil government. Don't don't follow what they're telling you, do what we say. It's not gonna go over very well. In contrast, Lutheranism was now supported by the princes who embraced it, giving them great authority in matters both civil and ecclesiastical. And we, we see the other side of the coin. You go too far away from the powers that be the civil government they're going to push back they're going to go after you but you come too far on their side then all of a sudden they're going to come right on in and we have this once again we saw it with Constantine we've seen it all through the years anytime that the church cozies up to these leaders or to these governments they get undue influence from outside that make things worse The civil authorities want to come on in. It's not enough for them to be in charge of everything else. They want to be in charge of the church too, and they're not going to give that up. So Lutheranism had that going on right off the bat. We talked about Martin Luther. We already know why he needed these princes to help him to be able to do what he was going to do. But unfortunately, they're not going to help without a cost. They're going to expect to be able to have some say, and they certainly did do that. In Zurich, the Council of Government had the final word in religious matters. They were involved right off the bat. I mean, that's just the way that government was set up. So, England so didn't even really have a choice. If he wanted to function, they had to be in on it, and they were in on it. The same was true in Catholic land. Obviously, we've talked n- numerous times about the history of the Catholic Church having the civil powers be in control of naming leaders and even coming up with doctrine and all of those things. Nothing's changed about that. So, these groups are kind of playing ball and the civil government sees a useful reason to have them around. They can they can meddle in them. They can use them for their own ends. These Anabaptists are not like that. They're not getting in there. And so, okay, here's a group that is not going to let me have any say, so it's not going to do me any good to support them. Everybody else hates them anyway. And to top it all off, They're telling people not to listen to what the civil government says, and if we get attacked, don't take up arms. That's not a group that's going to endear itself to the government. (laughs) That's a group that they're going to want to stomp out. And believe me, that's exactly what they set out to do. Anabaptists were also radical egalitarians. So that's not popular at this time. In most of their groups, women enjoyed the same rights as men, while the poor and ignorant were to be considered as important as the rich and learned. Now... Were they always really No. but that's what they taught and believed and they let the women have a whole lot more say in their group the same rights as men not what's going on in society not what's happening at this time so that's another black mark on them another red flag oh what's going on over here well they're letting the women get out of control you know <laughs> they're a little, look what they're doing with the poor that poor guy over there he's got they're letting him have say in the church they're letting him speak what's going on not not fitting in with society, they're going they're going about as opposite as they can get, so one more mark against them again, is it admirable? Absolutely it is. Thank the Lord that there's a group that recognized that the way people were being treated was not right, and that if any group should be saying that, it should be the Christian church and this was going on early on. Think about how early this is. This isn't just a new thing. this was kind of the precursor to. Some groups in, in Christianity standing up and saying we need to treat people better than we have. And, and they did that, but it was they were definitely ahead of their time, that's for sure. In these policies, the Anabaptists proved to be a forerunner of the modern spirit of religious tolerance. So they were a forerunner, but they were a little bit too for. <laughs> and unfortunately for them, that was not something society was ready to take on. But I laugh about it, but absolutely have respect for this. Have, respect anyone throughout the the years of Christianity that we read about in history that actually had the courage and the right standing with God, the right understanding of scripture and the things of God to be able to stand up and say the way some people in our society are being treated is wrong and we're not only going to say that but we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're going to live that way and so this group, they're not perfect. You're going to see, they're, they've got some serious problems. I've already pointed out some of the ways that it just wasn't going to work in society. But we should definitely respect that. And I very much do respect them. So then let's look at this confession of Schleitheim. In order to curb extremism among their ranks, a number of Anabaptist leaders met in Schleitheim, Switzerland, in 1527. This meeting resulted in the confession of Schleitheim. In this document, the Anabaptist leaders expounded on the seven fundamental principles and practices held by most Anabaptists. So there was a group that said, okay, if we're not careful, there's some extreme thoughts going on, extreme ideas, and we definitely want to to push some things, but let's not let it get too far. So let's just go ahead and agree on some things. So we're all on the same page. They thought this would help, and unfortunately it actually didn't really end up helping. The first was that baptism was only to be administered to those who have repented and amended their lives and who believed in Christ. Again, for modern Protestants, not every group, but many modern Protestants, this is a very acceptable. This is exactly what we believe to be true. New Testament baptism, if that's what we're practicing, that is to be done by somebody who has come to a relationship with God through faith in Christ. And we have this group to thank for pushing this. But... Again, it was going against the grain, even among the Protestants of the time. The second had to do with the ban, which was to be applied to those who refused to amend their lives after three admonitions, two private and one public. So this is the church discipline deal. If there's somebody that's not living right, they get two cracks privately. We'll come to you in private. We won't embarrass you, but we're going to try to straighten you out. If that doesn't work, then you get one publicly in front of everybody and if that's not even enough if you're not shamed into doing what's right by that point then you're out and, if, and, that, and what that would amount to is they were banned from being able to partake of communion with the rest of the group the third was that communion was not to be offered to those who were not baptized and that's again trying to get people who are actually Christians what they felt like would be to be baptized let's not let's not see this in the wrong light. They're not saying baptism saves you. But what they are saying is, once you understand what they're teaching, you'll realize your early, bat, your original baptism when you were an infant is not valid, and you'll come be baptized. So it, they're seeing it as a sign, but it's a it's a extreme step because this is being persecuted. When you go get rebaptized, they're not liking that. They don't see it as re-baptism, obviously, but that's the way the rest of society saw it. So once that happens, they realize, okay, you're in, you're in with us. You've come, you understand that you had to come on your own to Christ, and now is the proper time to be baptized. And so by doing that, you show that you understand that, and you can come and be a part of the church, and you can come and be a part of communion. And then the fourth one was true believers must separate themselves from all that is not united with God and Christ. So this is about just staying away from worldly things. The fifth outlined the duties of pastors. The sixth and seventh principles rejected the use of the sword, meaning all forms of war and violence, as well as the giving of oaths. This prohibited believers from participating in war, being involved in civil service, and also taking oaths to rulers and anything else that went along with that. So you see, here these rulers are looking at this and saying, uh, okay, now it's not just them saying it, they've written it down. They're saying that in order to be a part of this group, they can't take up arms. They can't be involved in war. You can't, They can't even be involved in the government, in government service. And they can't take an oath of loyalty to their leader. Well, what do we do if we have a whole group of, if this is all our society is, we don't really have one anymore. The government can have really no say. And it's not going to last anyway because as soon as an enemy figures out that these people aren't taking up arms, they're walking in. So, you know, again, absolutely absolutely understand their heart, agree with much of what they had to say, but also understand from the civil authorities angle, this was not a workable society. It it just was not. It was a society that was going to end up being overtaken by somebody else. And they would have ended up back like the early Christians were. They would have been ended up under Turkish rule with Islam being the national religion, and they certainly would have been persecuted again. So they were on their way to being backed by like the early church was, but the government leaders, at least, and also the religious leaders, as we say, were not really that interested in going back to that. So as a result, persecution came, and it certainly came from the Catholic side. We know that. But it also came from the civil authorities, and it also came from other Protestants who didn't agree with this group. All of these rules appeared very subversive. So even them trying to come up with this confession, To make things a little better, to kind of rein people in, it didn't really help. They have written down now the same rules that they've already looked at, all these groups, and said this won't work. And therefore, Anabaptists continue to be persecuted, and they're being persecuted more and more all the time. In 1525, the Catholic areas of Switzerland began condemning them to death. In 1526, the Council of Government in Zurich followed suit. Within a few months, persecution spread to the rest of Switzerland. So all throughout Switzerland, both groups, the Catholics and the Protestants, have said that they can be persecuted and they can actually be condemned to death. Why? Well, they're being heretical. The Catholics already said that about all the Protestants anyway, so that wasn't really that big of a stretch. But although in Switzerland they did agree to get kind of agree to disagree type of deal, the fact that the Protestants joined in on it, that's pretty shocking. But they did, and it wasn't just in Switzerland either. In Germany, each state followed its own course, generally applying to Anabaptists various ancient laws against heretics. And what was the ancient punishment for heretics? It was death. They're, they're going to kill them too. Now, each each state in, in Germany, that weren't under one centralized government. They all kind of got to pick their own deal as far as that goes, but they all picked the same thing. They, they may have used different rules, but it was the same result. If you're a part of this group, then you can be condemned to die. In 1528, Charles V ordered them to be put to death on the basis of an ancient Roman law which had targeted Donatus with the death penalty for rebaptizing. Don't have enough time with this to go back and look at the Donatists, but if you go back to Season 1 of the History of Christianity, you can definitely find the episode that talks about the Donatists. But there was this ancient law that really was for a group that practiced rebaptizing. This group didn't do that, but they got accused of it. So they said, oh, well, this, this is the same thing. It's not, but that's what he said. Remember, Charles V is the emperor, so he's got a lot of say. And he says, let's go ahead and put them to death. I've got, I found a law that says we can do it. The Diet of Spite of 1529 also approved these policies of persecution. The only German prince who refused to apply the edict was Philip I, landgrave of Hess. So we've talked about him a little bit before, but again, thank the Lord for somebody that was willing to stand up in his time and say, this is not right. You know, we we don't agree with everything the Anabaptists say and their way of life is not gonna ultimately be the way that all of society can live. But at the same time, we don't have to kill them over it. We don't, they're not really being heretical. So it's not, it's not correct to do this, and he didn't agree with the edict. So again, we should thank the Lord and remember very fondly and with a lot of respect the people that stood up because they were definitely in the minority through time. The martyrs were many, but the more fiercely it was persecuted, the more the movement grew. And this is true in just about any place you look Christianity spreading. If it is persecuted, it grows like wildfire. And it may be that way with any religious group, I'm really not sure, but it is definitely that way with Christianity. The, the times when it really kind of sags and doesn't do well is when it gets into a society where it's fully accepted. And there's really no skin in the game for anybody to be involved. You just It becomes very cultural and it becomes very easy. And, and when that happens, it, it just tends to not grow. It doesn't flourish. It doesn't do well. But when it's being persecuted, when it's when there's blood on the line, man, it grows like crazy. And it did here, too, with this group. The more you'd think, just kill everybody, or start wiping them out, and people realize that they shouldn't come and join this group. Man, the same mistakes of history get made on and on and on again. That never is the way this happens. It never happens that you attack and persecute a group, and that just dissuades everybody from joining them because what they start to see is, man, there must be something to this because these people are willing to die for it. It makes you wanna find out what's going on because who is willing to lay their life down for a cause? Very few people. They might lay their life down for their country. I mean, a lot of people would do that, but what about a religious cause? What about something like that, a principle you live for? You start finding massive numbers of people dying for that, And it at least piques people's interest, and they definitely want to find out what's going on. And it it automatically gives some validity to it just on the basis of the fact that somebody's willing to die for it. So it doesn't matter. The mistakes of history get made, whether you study them or not. You've heard that phrase time and time again, we we must study history or else we're doomed to repeat it. It doesn't matter if you study history, we're still doomed to repeat it. Because people study what happened but what they usually don't study is why it happens. And even if they do study that, they don't look in the right places. And so if you miss that point, then you missed everything. And, and these same ideas, these same thoughts, get, keep going along and get passed down and they never work. And you end up with the same thing. So here we are. This group is, is growing strong in spite of the persecution they're under. But we also know that it is typical of human beings that they can only be pushed so far before they start pushing back. And that brings us to the revolutionary Anabaptists. As the first generation of Anabaptist leaders succumbed to persecution, the movement became more radical. The original pacifism of the movement was forgotten and hopes of violent revolution began to form. So this group moved away from pacifism. Where was it getting them? It was getting them killed. They had seen the first generation of their leadership get, get killed by other Christians, by other Protestants, people that should have been at least, maybe not 100% in agreement with them, but at least be on their side that they had a right to live. And no, they're not thinking that, they're killing them. And so this group decided oh, that's enough of that. Well, we've seen what the result of that is. And so it's time to stand up and say, this is not gonna happen anymore. And they did. Milkor Hopman was a leather dresser who had been first a Lutheran and then a Zwinglian before becoming an Anabaptist. So he kind of moved through Luther first, then Zwingli. Really, they, they didn't go far enough. People that moved from Luther to Zwingli were because they didn't feel like Luther went far enough. Then they got to Zwingli. A lot of them thought that was good enough. But then many of them went on and said, hey, he, he's not going far enough. So then the next step was the Anabaptist movement. In Strasbourg, where the Anabaptist movement was given more tolerance, Hoffman began announcing the day of the Lord was near. Here's another thing that you see with a lot of these groups that are offshoots or smaller groups that start to get under heavy persecution or society didn't accept them. They start to have these proclamations about the Lord returning. God's on their side and he's going to come back and defend them. And so that's what we see with Hoffman here. His preaching attracted the multitudes to come to Strasbourg. He rejected Anabaptist pacifism on the grounds that, as the end approached, it would become necessary for believers to take up arms against the children of darkness. So he says, you know, look at the scripture, read about the end times. The the children of God are going to have to take up arms. They're going to have to fight the forces of darkness of this world. And maybe that wasn't the way it was in the past and we should have been pacifists, but now it's here. The time has come. The end time is here. All these generations of Christians believe the end time was coming on their lifetime at some point from the first generation to the ones today. Uh, people all the time now are talking about the signs of the end. And I'm not saying it's wrong. There's, I think there's signs of the end at every generation. It's kind of a cyclical thing. Eventually it's gonna come to a head, but we all look for it. And this group definitely was starting to see it. They thought it's, it's time, the end is here, and we're gonna be the group that's gonna be left standing. Hoffman predicted that he would be in prison for six months, after which the end of the world would come. Just a little advice to any of you that want to throw out prophecy. If you want to throw out some radical prophecy, do it at for after you're dead. Don't do it in your lifetime. Because if you're wrong, then you're left in real bad shape. And Hoffman did it within <laughs> within six months. That is not much time. Give it a few years at least. You can kind of build up some momentum get some people on your side. Or better yet, give it 100 years. You're long dead by the time people figure out that what you said was just a bunch of nonsense. But people don't do that for whatever reason. And I guess it means that he probably did believe it, but it's stupid. He predicted that he would be in prison for six months and then the end of the world was going to come. Well, well, long after that, he was in prison. So people were parking up. Oh, look, he said he was going to be in prison. So the clock's ticking. Let's, let's see what happens six months from now. Well, six months passed and the end didn't come, so someone suggested that the New Jerusalem would not be established in Strasbourg, but rather in Munster. That's what I'm telling you. Uh, All of you future cult leaders or religious offshoot leaders or whatever that want to come up with a prediction, you're going to lose your people. You're going to lose them as soon as you throw out that number and it's six months or a year or whatever and it doesn't happen. Who's going to stick around with you? You can only do that so many times. There's been a few of them that have gotten away with it a couple of times. But, you know, after one usually, but you get about two or three, you know, the Lord's coming in this year, that year, then you're losing everybody. They're moving on. And that's what they did. They left old Hoffman in prison. He stayed there. And as far as we know, he died there. There's no record that he ever got out of prison. So he probably died in as a prisoner. And his followers abandoned him. Six months passed and the uh, end of the world didn't come. So... But they're not going to give up on the idea either. So we're going to establish God's kingdom, not in Strasbourg, but let's go on over to Munster. So to Munster they went. Munster had a number of both Protestant and Catholic citizens. This created an environment of tolerance that allowed the Anabaptists to come without being persecuted. So another area that they saw they could get away with following their religious practice without much persecution and they would be able to survive there. Soon, the number of Anabaptists and Munster was such that they took over the city. So they come in and in such strong numbers, there's more of them than anybody else. Two leaders came up from this group, John Matthias and John of Leiden. One of their first acts was to expel the Catholics from the city. So right off the bat, they're Protestants. Let's throw these Catholics out. We know we are not going to get along with them. So out they went. But that didn't make the bishop very happy. All of a sudden, he didn't have a place to serve and he's not going to get his salary and all the other little fringe benefits from being a part of that. So he decides, I'm going to get an army together and we're going to lay siege to the city. And I'm not putting up with this. So that's going on. But then soon, moderate Protestants, if the Protestants weren't far enough along, well they got rid of them too. So Catholics went and Protestants went. Now... In their defense, the, both of these groups want to kill the Anabaptists. Now, I know these this particular city they're kind of tolerating them, but how long is it going to be before they don't figure out that they need to go against them themselves? So it's kind of a smart move, actually. These these are the groups. Everywhere else they're trying to kill us. Uh, are we going to just sit here and let them kind of coexist with us? No. Let's get them out of here, and then we can survive here. So you know, again not. It's an understandable move, but unfortunately, once again, it doesn't end up going well for them. And then, not only did they kick out the moderate Protestants and the Catholics, but then sculptures, paintings, and all other items connected with traditional belief and worship were destroyed. They didn't like that stuff. They didn't want it around. They got rid of it. But then, the siege began to take its toll. Outside the city, all Anabaptists were killed on sight, Inside the city, the situation worsened daily as food became increasingly scarce. So they can't get out. They can't get food. If you if you leave, you're dead. If you stay, you live for a long a while longer, but you're going to starve to death and something's got to change. The people became more emotional and pretty soon there became a series of, of claims of people saying they had, had visions, revelations from God. It just got out of hand and a lot of it had to do with food deprivation and maybe sleep deprivation. They're not healthy. They're not getting what they need. Their body's not getting nourishment. So they're starting to dream this stuff up and that makes a bad situation worse. In a military sortie against the Bishop, John Matthias was killed. And then at that point, John of Leiden became leader of the city. As a result of the war, there were now many more women than men. That's a problem. Who are they gonna marry? Well, John Leiden found a solution to that. He just said, you know what? We believe strongly in what the scripture says and live in biblically. will read the Old Testament. They had polygamy there. We can bring it on back now. So that'll satisfy the women. We'll have polygamy. And if there's too many women for, for men, then the men can just take more than one and that'll, that'll solve it. So he, he did that. That kind of deal didn't work though. They're in a city where they're, they're practicing polygamy. That was not something that this society did. They're not getting food, they're scared, the men are going off to fight and they're not coming home, they're getting killed. And crazy visions are getting talked about and revelations and it just got to be enough. So because of all of this stuff going on and, and being tired of the excesses of the visionaries coming up with new stuff all the time. wish we had more time to get into some of the crazy stuff, but you can look at that in your in your own study. Some of the inhabitants finally just said, let's open the gates. Let's let this bishop in and stop this nonsense. And of course, John of Lydon was captured. He was tortured and he was executed. And as a result of that, this ended the primary outburst of revolutionary Anabaptism. So you may be th- thinking, well, this crazy stuff is going on with the Anabaptists. They had some great points. It went a little too far to, to work at this time. So I don't know of any Anabaptist churches around now, so it must have ended that right. There's not any of these groups around anymore. Well, it's not actually true. There is. There's actually there's more than one that you can trace your roots back to. In fact, even Baptists today can in some ways trace their roots back to, although it's not exactly. But there's a there's one group that's primarily a direct offshoot of this group. When you hear their name and the name of their leader, you may get clued in by his name, but you'll definitely know. At least most of you will have heard of this group and many of you will probably have interacted with some people in this group and they are a direct offshoot or direct descendant of the anabaptist movement and we can call several groups in this movement latter anabaptists but we're going to focus on one, one group in particular the fall of munster brought back the practice of pacifism to the anabaptists they decided you know fighting back against society did not work out. It was a disaster. So maybe we ought to go back to the pacifism idea. That seemed to work a little better. Yeah, some of the leaders got killed and that wasn't so great, but it beats being captured in a city and starving to death and then eventually getting killed anyway. The principal figure at this time was Mino Simons, a former Dutch Catholic priest. He was led to reconsider the practice of infant baptism by the martyrdom of an Anabaptist in 1531. In 1536, Mino left his position as a parish priest and became an Anabaptist. So he moved from Catholicism to the Anabaptist position because he had seen, again, remember, this is a, this is a direct example of this, saw somebody who was willing to die for his faith. And that made an impression on him. He started thinking, this person died because they were so against infant baptism. Maybe I need to rethink this. If that's worth dying for, then what is it about it that's that bad? And he started thinking it through. And five years later, he would just move, he would moved right from being a Catholic priest to being an Anabaptist because he had seen somebody die for their faith. He joined a Dutch Anabaptist fellowship. Eventually, his followers would come to be known as Mennonites. So this is the group that still exists today. I've known people in this group personally. I've known, I've been in some areas that there were communities of Mennonites around us. And I've been in places where you see them come through and you could tell by the way they dressed that they were part of the group, particularly the women. And you may very well know some Mennonites, and you probably definitely heard of them. So this is the group. This is the Anabaptist group that still exists today, the biggest one. There's some other smaller groups, but the Mennonites are still around. There's still a lot of them, and they are the group that came down from the Anabaptist movement. Though the Mennonites also suffered persecution, Mino traveled through Holland and northern Germany for years, preaching his faith and encouraging his followers. So this guy... They were still being persecuted, but for whatever reason, he he got away from it. He was able to go and do his preaching. He authored a number of works, of which foundations of the Christian doctrine published in 1539 became the most influential. Mino embraced pacifism. He also felt believers should not offer any oaths whatsoever and that they should not occupy positions requiring them. So the same beliefs that started the Anabaptist movement, he had them he further believed they should obey civil authorities so don't don't disobey the civil authorities or flaunt you know or go out against them not support them you should obey them as long as what was required of them did not con- contradict scripture so of course he would say don't you, you can't be involved in military service and that way they wouldn't be obedient to the civil authorities but they thought that directly the scripture said not you can't defend yourself or even your country but as long as it wasn't something like that, you go, you obey what the civil authorities say. Baptism should only be administered to adults who express their faith publicly. Finally, Mino and his followers practiced foot washing. So they took the practice of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and they wanted to literally keep on doing that, and, and so they did that as well. The Mennonites were persecuted and scattered throughout Eastern Europe, particularly Russia. Later, some left for North America, thinking they would have more religious freedom there, but... They still faced difficulties because both Russia and the United States at that time required military service. You know, the U.S. doesn't do that anymore unless it's a wartime type of deal. But I'm not sure about Russia. I don't know if they still do or not. But they they ran into some problems with that. So it didn't completely end their problems, but it it did help. But because of it, because they, they still had difficulties, in the 19th and 20th centuries, many Mennonites immigrated to South America. So there's still groups of Mennonites in South America today. But by the 20th century, Mennonites were the main branch of the old Anabaptist movement. Persecution became chiefly a matter of the past. Many Mennonites gained an honored place in society through their social service. So obviously this is not a group that is persecuted anymore. It's not a group that people look down on anymore. They may see some of the ways that they dress a little bit differently. It's not crazy, but a little bit differently and kind of wonder, well, I wonder what that's about. But it's really not any, they're not looked at in any way by any Christian groups as being a bad group or having bad theology. In fact, this group, we owe a lot to them. They were not perfect. They definitely had some problems. They definitely had some issues. They definitely took things a little too far in some cases. But they made that jump. They made that push to get past what Zwingli was willing to say. Even though what he said should have eliminated some of the practices that he he agreed with, they pushed further and and we owe a debt to them we owe a debt of gratitude to the anabaptists and we still have that group around today and and that's at least the biggest one that's still around today the mennonites well we've gone a long time today looking at this group it's been a good look at another group that came and kind of took that those reformation ideas those protestant ideas and moving them on down the chain next week we're going to get to the guy that many of you have been waiting for and some of you are going to be, want to hear about him because you agree with him and you practice a lot of your beliefs come from this particular leader in the group that he formed. And some of you, it'll be because you don't agree with him and you want to hear about him. And some of it will be because you've heard about this guy and you have no idea what he's about and you want to know more. And you probably already guessed who it is. It's John Calvin. So next week, we're going to talk about John Calvin. We're going to talk about Calvinism. And we're going to talk about the influence he had on what became known as reform theology. So I hope that you can join me next week for that. It's not gonna be a one week deal. It's going we're gonna talk about that a lot, but we'll you'll get the you'll get the first part of it next week. So come on back for that. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week and God bless.